Nelson Mandela once said that education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. On this podcast, we will be discussing and exploring issues of education and social justice. On this episode of The Most Powerful Weapon, we will be discussing bilingual education and equity in education. On today's episode, we have our educated guest, Adria, here to help us learn more. Let's introduce ourselves by sharing what inspired us to become educators. I'm your host, David, and I wanted to become an educator because in 2007, I found myself at a crossroads of the birth of our first child, the death of our best friend, and a job that was going in the wrong direction. Um, I really wanted to be present for my daughter in her life, and I also wanted to make a positive impact on the world around me. My parents were both educators, and I'd originally gone to college to become a teacher, got sidetracked by a psychology degree, and went into the restaurant business. And uh, 15 to 20 years later, I decided to take the leap and go back and get my teaching license. I'm very glad I did that, and it's been a, a great pleasure to learn from and be able to be around uh, young people in the classroom. I'm your co-host, Andrea, and I became an educator because when I was a student growing up, I was identified as a special education student, um, and I struggled a lot at an early age with learning to read. But then in middle school, I had a teacher who really inspired me and encouraged me to find books that I loved, and I just fell in love with reading, and I wanted to give that back to my students. I definitely had some teachers during my time that um, made me want to prove them wrong, I guess I'll say, for lack of a better word. I just wanted to give back to students and I wanted to uh, especially help students like me who felt a little bit lost growing up and who didn't really have somebody in their life that they could depend on. So I think about this quote a lot, it's be the person you needed when you were younger. And that's something that inspires me to keep teaching is to be there for the kids um, that are like me, the kids that fall through the cracks and the ones that often get overlooked in the classroom. And I'm really excited because today we have Adria with us. And so I'd love for Adria to introduce herself, tell us about her, and tell us why she became a teacher. I first want to start by thanking you both for having me and for having this podcast to giving um, educators like myself a platform and to give us a voice. So I'm so grateful. Um, So yeah, I'm a Chicana from Denver, and I grew up and graduated from DPS. And growing up, I did not um, learn about what it was to be Chicana, what Chicano was, what, or learned anything about the Mexican culture until I was about 14 in eighth grade. My brother, who was a Chicano studies um, major and got his degree in Chicano studies from Metro, he handed me a book called Youth Identity and Power, the Chicano Movement by Carlos Munoz. And at that point in my life, I realized who I was and what that meant. And um, it's what ins- it changed my life at that point. And it inspired me to continue with my own education so that I could be an agent of change. And it's important to know that through my K-12 experience, I had one Mexican-American teacher besides my brother, my brother, who's my main te- who was my main teacher, but in terms of public school, out of that entire career in Denver, I had one Mexican-American teacher. And that also left um, an impact on me of the importance of the representation of Mexican-American and Chicano teachers. And that's why I went and continued uh, my education and 
got both a bachelor's and master's in bilingual education. And bilingual education is not just the linguistic pedagogy of uh, teaching, but also is the social political implications and history of, of bilingual education in this country. Awesome. Awesome. I know that, and, and, and we've discussed this before, I know that there's categories that the education puts us into, right? Uh, and, and the racial category is one of those. Um, and we talked about, uh, what do you prefer, you know? Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx. And you brought up this idea of like, I consider myself Chicana, right? Um, and I think that's great. I think that's great that you feel that power and you feel that connection to your culture. I wish there would be more inclusion of Chicano, Chicana representation. You'd mentioned that uh, you've been working with uh, Dr. Espinosa from the University of Colorado. And I found that work really interesting and wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that. Absolutely. Um, Along the journey of being an educator for 19 years, um, last summer I came, like you, I came to a crossroads, but in my career as an educator. And what that crossroads was, was that I was in a moment of despair and disillusionment and just tired of being part of an oppressive system. And so um, I've decided, I toyed with the idea of getting my PhD. And my brother, who I said is my, my life teacher, said, don't you remember my homeboy, Manuel? He's a professor at UCD. And I was like, oh, my gosh. When my brother started, um, he was in Mecha at Metro and started his Chicano Studies journey. He had a very good friend named Manuel Espinosa. I reached out to him last summer, and he gave me um, a few articles that he had written about dignity. And when we talk about human rights and, and educational rights and social justice, and we just have that one word dignity, it just, it just reaches you. Like, I, I feel it's a word that just gets everybody. Like, we can feel, feel it. But through, through his research, and, um, and I, he invited me to join his research collective, which is an undergraduate collective. Um, and I, I joined them last September. And through his research and um, work, he has become a dignity scholar. And so when he speaks to the word dignity, and he describes it as the inherent, inalienable, and supreme value of the human person in social life, life itself. So R2L is his group, Right to Learn, the undergraduate collective. And R2L is building a rhetoric for dignity. Um, So through that rhetoric, it's the language of dignity and a handbook. In the handbook, we are identifying its usage, its content, and its criteria. Um, With this rhetoric of dignity, um, Manuel and R2L, we hope to amend the Colorado Constitution, specifically in its education clause. So our education clause in the Colorado Constitution was written at the, concept, at the inception of becoming a state in the 1870s. And so in Manuel's words, it's anemic, right? Because it has, has not evolved with education research and most importantly, the rights of all students to an education. And so within that, he wants to talk, he wants to, and R2L wants to amend the constitution 
Um, so it includes the fundamental right, including dignity-affirming educational experiences. That's awesome. I know I teach middle school, uh, Adria, and a lot of our students, especially our gifted students, like to talk a lot about their rights and what they have a right to in the classroom. Um, and that can be a really fun conversation, just learning about student rights in general, but also like the rights of minors and the rights of people in schools. There's a lot of different like uh, Supreme Court cases I know that follow that. So I think this is extremely interesting and I um, could see it as a really cool lesson with my students. So I'm curious, how do you see um, your research on student rights and dignity playing out in your classroom or in your school community? I feel that, so dignity in terms of what Manuel talks about is that it, um, it's an affirming experience, right? So in, when we're in the classroom, it's an experience that affirms who we are as a human being and values us. And so when you think about a classroom and like specifically, I've, I've always focused on, um, my, my, my background is bilingual education. So most of my students um, that I have the skills to support are new to the language and new to the country. Oftentimes are called newcomers, but students who are new to the country and new to the English language. And so when you think about their experience when they first come or when they're first enter school, the affirming experience is not them sitting quietly, not understanding anything that's happening around them without any support. And that is the reality of many, many classrooms with newcomers who are new to the language. And so, for example, according to the National Center of Education Statistics, in 2017, 10% of students in the, in the U.S. are what is termed ELLs, English language learners. I'm not a fan of that term because it only labels them for one category, and that's English. Um, a, a more just terminology is emergent bilingual. They're bilingual. There's more to them than just their proficiency in English, right? So with that 10%, that's 5 million students. Of that 5 million, 3.8 million are Spanish speakers. So um, since the arrival of immigrants to this land, schooling was always held in the mother tongue. So when Dutch immigrants, German immigrants, when they first came to this country, they always began school in their mother tongue, right? Because that's, we learn in the language that we think of and that we dream of. And so with time, though, with more immigration and with um, English um, immigrants being the more dominant group, there became this time in the late 1870s, and it really started with ben Benjamin Franklin because he was frustrated that so many German immigrants couldn't understand him. So there started this reality, this new term called Americanization, which often is synonymous with Anglicization, right? We're going to Americanize them. We're going to Anglicize them. When we're thinking about a human person and who they are, is that dignifying, affirming. That same practice of uh, Americanization, Anglicization, is what we see as assimilation today. Assimilation into the quote-unquote dominant culture. But if we're assimilating students, we're saying that your culture and your language is not good enough. In order to be successful, you have to be an English speaker and adopt these sets of values. If we really want to empower people and give them the dignity and the right to their education, we have to start with who they are and affirming and valuing who they are. 
So that's how I see that playing out in schools and communities. <laughs> so I know my dad, he grew up in a household that spoke primarily, well, only Spanish, like both my grandparents only spoke Spanish in the home. And then he went to school, obviously, and had to learn English. And when we were growing up as kids, despite the fact that he grew up in a Spanish-speaking home and was bilingual, same with his siblings, he was kind of of a generation where it was almost frowned upon to teach your kids Spanish, um, even if that was your background, because they wanted that assimilation and they saw that as their pathway to being more successful. So I know, like, for me and my siblings, none of us learned Spanish at our house. Um, We took it in school, like, just like everybody else. So that was really interesting for me to see that connection that you're talking about of, of the ways that um, assimilation has played a role in bilingual education for sure. Mm-hmm. And you think about that, how, what decade was that, right? So in that, in that decade, to be successful, you had to learn English. To be successful, you had to adapt. You had to assimilate. Did that work? And then you go back to when I was in high school and I had one Mexican-American teacher. Is that really closing the gap? Did it close the gap? No. Yeah, no, those are, those are all great questions. Um, and I know Rowan and I have talked a little bit about teachers of color in education. And uh, I know there's a future episode on that plan. But I, same as you, Adria, I had one teacher of color in my high school. And I didn't get to see that, um, that played out in my school either. Mm-hmm. And, and myself as a history teacher and, and studying the... Uh, you know, manifest destiny and, and westward expansion yeah. um, and this kind of Protestant ideal that needed to be spread across the land. Uh, you, you see this playing out in a lot of different ways. And uh, one of the ways was the uh, genocide of the indigenous peoples and uh, literally forcing them to uh, live on reservations and to give up their culture and to give up their language and to to learn and, and be and live in this quote unquote uh, American ideal of the 19th century. And, and in that, uh, a large part of what is now considered the lower 48 United States was part of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And it just is hard, you know, to, to see that what uh, proud culture who inhabited uh, this land for many generations, you know, is now being asked to give up their culture, give up their language, and 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 assimilate into into the this Americanized way that you're talking about. Also, uh, it's yeah, the, the it's a majority. Eighty percent of teachers are white. All right, and so uh, as a white teacher myself, you know, when, when, when we as white teachers find ourselves in a classroom of students that um, are emerging in, in their language skills and their English language skills and have all this rich uh, culture and their native language, um, what do you think is the best way to, for us to bridge that gap and to be uh, advocates for those students? Yeah, those, that's, those are, that's a great question. And I think that um, given our current um, events of what we see happening and the injustices that are becoming so um, visible to us as educators as we're home, I think it's an important time for reflection. Um, So 
for that, we must first recognize our unconscious biases and how the socialization itself of teaching impacts our own biases. And by that, um, I mean our whole system is a value system that values one set, one group, and one language. And that's not the representation of our students. So that's what, if you, Dr. Eddie Gloud, who I've been reading a lot, talks about the value gap. The value gap is on us. We've created that gap in value because our systems are valuing only one group. And so, for example, when we look at standards, and we all, as educators, we all work, we unpack standards, we create um, rubrics on standards, we use exemplars. And I think it's critical to look like, but to think about who were those standards written for and whom sets the benchmarks. Also, if English only white students are a norm, then it automatically puts non-English speaking students as the deviant group. How is that just? How is that equitable? We need to really start looking at our systems critically and as to who they are placing value on. So, The question is also, how does the ideology manifest into educator perspective of students and ultimately our practice in the classroom? So assimilation practice is and has been the practice of our school systems from the beginning, right? English-only movements have been on the most powerful assimilation models, and that's pretty much in the district I work in is an English-only district. So we have 4,000 emerging bilinguals, 90% plus are Spanish speakers. So if you look at that system as an English-only system, when we talk about our emerging bilingual students, we use terms such as non-English proficient, limited English proficient, and in intervention, always with this deficit perspective. We're always speaking about our students who are in marginalized communities and who are diverse with a deficit perspective because they don't fit that norm. That right there is a system we need to change. If we don't change that system and that perspective, we're going to keep oppressing those groups. And it's time that we're conscious of that. I know one of the things, so David and I work at a school that is um, geared towards gifted and talented students, uh-huh. and we had noticed that we don't get a lot of students of color within our population, so we were curious kind of, I guess, your thoughts on that, or can you kind of explain this discrepancy? What are your thoughts there? Yes, it's very hard to know who our students are if we can't communicate with them, right? It's also unfortunate that we do not have more bilingual teachers and prioritize hiring bilingual teachers to be able to reach those children. There's an old, there's a Chicano poet from Denver that was an acclaimed poet, and his name was um, Lalo Delgado. And he wrote a poem, and um, in Manuel's distinguished lecture that um, he was the UCD's distinguished lecture of, of 2020, he brings up this poem. And in this poem, the last stanza, Lalo writes, Super America, 
Can't you see that there's Chicano with 1,000 Picassos? And he will die with those 1,000 Picassos hanging from his mind. And so it's saying that we are not identifying all the brilliance in our oppressed cultures because we continue to oppress them. We don't give them voice and we don't under get to know who they are. And I think a, a, big, a big beginning would be having more bilingual teachers that are able to communicate with our bilingual students. I don't understand why this isn't possible when we have so many Spanish speaking people in this country. We need to ensure that we are educating our bilingual people to become bilingual teachers. If you're not bilingual, I think that it's important to build that relationship and take the time to really understand who our students are and take out and try to disconnect what our socialization of teaching has told us what is gifted and who is gifted. And I, I think relationships is huge, but again, it's difficult to build relationships without the language and we need to be able to bridge the gap of that language. We've asked our students to learn English, but we haven't asked ourselves to learn Spanish. And I, I'm looking at some statistics from the uh, district we work in emergent uh, speakers or, or how they're labeled in the district ELL students make up mm-hmm. 13% of the total enrollment, 21% of the IEPs and only 1% of the gifted and talented. Uh, so I'm mm-hmm. wondering how this kind of forcing students to learn in a language that isn't native to them and maybe not yet being fully emergent in the language and being able to communicate clearly how, how that could mask the, the gifted and talented aspects of, of, a, of a student. I'm wondering how that uh, language could mask uh, them being identified as gifted and talented. Um, well, and I'm wondering how, for example, the assessment, when the assessment is given, is it given only in English? So right there, that's linguistically biased, right? So uh, we have, if a child is dominantly Spanish speaking, then the, that's what the test should be given in. However, when we immerse them in English and um, they're dominant Spanish speaking, they're not literate in their home language. And they are just barely learning to read and write in a language in the primary years that they're also simultaneously learning to speak. You know, when if you think about first language acquisition, when we first started, when we learn our first language, right, we learn to speak and communicate. And then four or five years later, we learn to, to um, read and write that language. Second language acquisition isn't much different in that process. And so if we're trying to get them to perform academically, when their communication in, L, in their second language has not yet developed, how are we going to really see how they, how they categorize, how they think, their creativity, what's going on inside their brilliant minds when we've silenced them. Um, so I think that's linguistically biased and we need to make sure we have a diverse offering of the assessment and we need to make sure we have people that are in contact with them that can really truly hear their voice. Also, we've talked about for schools that focus on or have a focus on GT, in order to apply to those schools, 
you have to have an IQ test through a school psychologist, which is hundreds of dollars. And so knowing that, the resource to that, and the accessibility, how do our immigrant families know? How are they given that information? So I do know that there some of the tests they give, they have nonverbal tests that they'll give for um, the gifted test to see whether a student is gifted. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. Um, Because I think even when you're thinking about, you know, if it's a test that uses images, some of our cultural associations might still be really prevalent within those images that are being used. So, yeah, who's making these tests and how can we get more diversity within that, I think, is a really good thought. And then you were talking um, about how we identify these students. So I know there's kind of like two ways that I've uh, heard of, I guess, of like identification. So one is that districts can do it for like everybody at a second grade level, for example, everybody would take the test to possibly be identified, um, which does make it more equitable. Again, that goes back to if the test itself is equitable as a whole other Mm -hmm. part of that situation, Um, but that makes it more equitable in terms of the access to the test. Mm -hmm. I know both of you talked about um, having children of your own and getting them tested and that you had to physically go to a psychologist and get them tested and pay for it. And therefore, we know that's not equitable. Not all families have the resources or means to do that or even just the the advocacy efforts to know how to navigate the system to make that happen for their child. Um, So I think all of that kind of leads back to this inequitable concept within gifted education, as well as bridging the gap for our English learners and students who are coming to this country. And, you know, that poem you shared was really beautiful, that description of we have all of these brilliant minds out there, but we'll never necessarily know or we'll never t- be able to tap into the capability unless we can bridge that gap. So I thought that was really beautiful. To add on to that, I've been uh, thinking a lot about just how uh, different students learn, right? Like even within one culture, students learn in many different ways. And when you come from a, a different culture, right, the non-dominant culture, uh, the ways of learning could be ways that I might not be able to identify as being like, oh my gosh, uh, you know, look at look at look at all they have to offer because I'm, if I'm a, a teacher who comes from the white American culture and I haven't done enough to kind of check my biases and learn about all of my students and create a a, a classroom where that's responsive to all cultures. It just it to me this just highlights the the importance of of teachers to be able to understand their students, develop relationships with them, see through any barriers that there may be, and then advocate, 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 advocate for these students, right, that are being asked to do these Herculean tasks, uh, learn a second language, socialize, all of these new things, and how frustrating it must be to live knowing that I student who may be in a brand new school and has this incredible mind and has all these thoughts, but like, I'm not quite yet able to articulate those and to feel kind of trapped, you know? And even to the point where, to Andrea's point, like gifted students may be identified with learning disabilities through no faults of their own, just because Mm -hmm. the language component isn't there yet. So uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the importance of this when we think about, like truly think about this national model and some might laugh at it, but you know, no child left behind. I mean, in theory, that's a 
that's a beautiful thing, right? We want all of our children to be successful and to get what they want and not through some state mandated test, but through actually like teaching and learning and relationship building and advocating. So I really appreciate you uh, uh, bringing these things forward. In terms of what you said about um, David, about the, you know, what we expect them to accomplish and, um, and our, our benchmarks. So for example, our second language acquisition research in for decades has all produced the same conclusion is that it takes five to seven years to learn a second language academically. But for our state assessments, um, when a student first comes to the country, they're given one year if they're Spanish speakers, they can have it in Spanish. It does not count for the school's uh, data. It does not count, but they are able to take it in Spanish. And then the following year, they have to take it in English. So that those unfair expectations that are contrary to what data is telling us and what the naturalistic approach to learning language, which we're humans, right? Everything's a naturalistic approach. And then our assessments don't match that. And so, yeah, thank you for bringing up the assessments as well. So, Addie, I know for the last, um, I don't know, however many years you've been a teacher, obviously, and you've been teaching kindergarten. I know that you're moving on to do something different. So I'm curious to hear about it. Um, why you chose to change that, uh, what you hope to gain from it, and what you hope to give back from it. So like I said last summer, I came, I came at a crossroads. And um, I just I had completed a year in kindergarten where 17 of my students were on replants for reading deficiency. And they um, were all native, most were native Spanish speakers who were new to the language. And then they were put into intervention, reading intervention, through a program that was developed for um, English speakers who have challenges learning English. I mean, learning to read. So it was a reading intervention program developed for native English speakers. So then my students who were deemed reading deficient were put into this reading intervention that was not developed for second language learners. And then I saw many coming up um, on our, we call it MTSS, so our our concerned list that just weren't making the mark, weren't making the progress. And like you said, Andrea, being referred for special ed and I, I, I couldn't fight the system anymore. I've been fighting it for 19 years and um, I didn't, I don't want to give up on them. I don't want to walk away from them. I want to keep fighting for them, but I did not feel I was making the impact as a classroom teacher. And so um, when I met, when I became reacquainted with Manuel and his research on dignity. I um, had applied to CU Boulder for the equity, bilingualism, and biliteracy um, PhD program. And I graciously awarded the Miramontes Fellowship, which is allowing me to pursue my PhD without creating a lot of debt, which is really I'm so thankful for. With that, I hope to be able to pay it forward and be able to create, help create one day, use, you know, empirical data and research to impact change in policies that move away from deficit um, policies to asset policies, to dignify, dignity affirming policies that protect and advocate for our oppressed cultures. And by changing those systems, 
that see the, the systems and bringing the consciousness of our systems being oppressive and with that white superiority ideology that English is the priority, that it, the assimilation, I'm hoping to bring that to a consciousness through data to help impact policies so that children can have dignity affirming experiences in school. That is amazing. Uh, and I'm really proud and excited for you. I think in this day and age, we see just a lot of turnover and education. Um, so I'm really glad to see somebody who wants to help change the system and sees a clear path to doing that through getting their doctor and then being able to like work to make um, all of these systems more dignity affirming, like you said, and make them um, give more equality to our students of color. I think that's amazing. And I, I'm just really proud, proud of you. And I don't, I know I haven't known you very long, but I'm excited um, to hear about your work and see where it goes and read about you in textbooks in the future. <laughs> and then, yeah, one thing we always like to do here uh, on our podcast is to end with an action step. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what is one action that you think teachers can take to better serve um, the students in their classroom who might be, what did you call it? You didn't say ELLs. What was the term that you used? Emerging bilinguals. Emerging bilinguals. I'm going to mm-hmm. get used to using that um, because I like your idea of, you know, just the, the way that we change our language can change the way that students view themselves too. So mm-hmm. based on that, um, once again, what was the action that you think teachers can take to better um, serve the students in their classroom? I think just one. Andrew. <laughs> or multiple. <laughs> um, I think what after 19 years of teaching in public school, I think number one is to think critically about the system we're functioning in and is it working for our students? Just because the system is telling us this is what we need to do does not always mean that it's the right way. And I know that um, it can be scary to speak up and to advocate for who our students are, but that's why we're here. We're not here to do good by the system. We're here to do good by human beings. So I think that would be the number one. And number two would be to build, like David said, building the relationships and knowing our community. Even if you don't speak the language, if you're going and making that connection, the human connection, that is so powerful to families to feel validated and to feel valued. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and earlier you'd mentioned uh, work on trying to make changes to the Colorado constitution. Is there any work or any support that we or our listeners can provide in that area at this point? Wow. You know, that's a great question. Um, and probably a better question for Manuel. I think that um, as the months we're working right now on creating that rhetoric for dignity, um, and that is, I did, and Andre had brought up the court cases. It's exactly what we've looked at is court cases where there's been an infringement on dignity. And that's where we've pulled a lot of the rhetoric and the criteria for dignity. And so, but as things evolve, I will make sure to communicate that. And um, like I said, I, I think it's really important if you look up his distinguished lecture at UCD was March 2020, Dr. Manuel, Manuel Espinosa. He was the um, 
actually the Chancellor's Distinguished Faculty Lecture. And um, it's on YouTube. So I encourage everybody to listen to that to begin. Of course, you know, stay, stay, we'll stay in touch. And if there's more that can be done later, we'd be happy to add that in a segment of our podcast um, so that we can get behind this, what sounds like just amazing work on, on dignity. Yeah, it was really awesome to have you here, Addy. I really appreciate your voice and you sharing with us everything that you're doing. Um, it's really amazing. So we really appreciate having you here. Thank you for the platform, not only for me, but for other educators. The first two episodes on funding um, blew me away and taught me so much and was so much interwoven with what I'm talking about with inequities. It's just all so connected. And um, it's the education and the socialization that we as educators need. And we can only do it by educating ourselves and working together and collaborating together. So thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you for listening to our most recent episode of The Most Powerful Weapon. Uh, We'll be back soon with another episode, and we hope you guys enjoyed listening. We're the most powerful weapon because education is the most powerful weapon you can use to change the world, be the change you want to see in the world. Thanks for listening and look for our next episode coming soon.